Okay, well, we look forward to you uh, bringing what the Lord's put on your heart to, to share with us as we gather here. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Um, was it a good time this afternoon in the little the chapel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, we were. Yeah, it was it was a good time. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, we have a little group. We're quite an informal group, and and we're not allowed to currently use village halls or meet in in houses here in the UK. So we managed to ask a local place of worship if they would let us meet there, and it's this must be medieval church building with pews and uh, all sorts in a tiny little village. You Americans would love it. It's a little, <laughs> little village in rural Devon with thatched cottages and cobbled streets and, and that kind of thing. So we gathered in this old church with its pews and so on. And, but we had a blessed time. It was good. It was wonderful to be together and uh, to look to the Lord together. So, yeah, we had a good time. Mm. Well, I was encouraged, like you say, I was encouraged. <laughs> yes, amen. And we were in the little group um, this morning as well, as I mentioned. And uh, it's it's hard to explain, but it's it's an, an Anglican school. Uh, you'd say Episcopalian in America. And so the school actually allows it to be used as a kind of a place of worship. So they've allowed us to continue being there um, on a Sunday morning, which is a little bit of a surprise. So we meet in the small um, gym uh, in that little school. And again, we had a blessed time. And I suppose that links in somewhat with... um, what I want to share um, tonight, because you know that we're in to the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapters where Paul, he's, he, he's, he's talking about the church gathered, the people of God gathered. Um, that's his concentration, the life of the church, when it's gathered together, the ministry of the Lord in the midst of his people, uh, the nature of church as it meets together and as they care for one another and minister to one another. So that's our concentration for at least two or three weeks. And... Um, you you realize that um, the things of God's house are not open to human negotiation. Now, that is not understood uh, by the majority of people, um, but it, it's not it's not open to negotiation. Human beings saying, well, I think it'd be better if we did it this way. Or I think it would be better if we did it the other way. Um, You can probably remember, and it might sound strange, we're going into 1 Corinthians, but I I want you to just look in Exodus chapter 40 for a minute. Um, Because you will all realize that God had a house in the Old Testament. And 
of course, the main house was his people, the the house of Israel. Um, and of course, one of the mon- wonderful things about Israel was that they were a little nation among large nations, a little nation among many tribes. And all of those tribes had their gods. They had their houses, their places where they worshipped. They had their sacrificial systems. They had their images. They had their ideas. And, you know, careful reading of the scripture indicates that uh, these things that they did were a mixture of their own carnal imaginations and demons, the idols they made, the methodologies of worship that they had. They were a mixture of their own sometimes well-intentioned desires to to find some meaning in life, some god that they could worship. And their imagination ran wild and they formed things with the aid of evil spirits. Hence, you get idols. I can always remember the first time I went to Kathmandu, and um, this would be beyond some of you um, to remember, but Bing Crosby and Bob Hope (laughs) had a lot of um, uh, movies that they made back in the 40s, The Road to, The Road to, The Road to, and one of them was The Road to Kathmandu, and one of the songs in that uh, sort of comedy movie was um, The Little Green Idol in Kathmandu. And, of course, when I first went there, that's uh, the first time I actually saw a city full of idols. And, you know, the sense of the wicked one, of spirits, and so on. And among all these nations in the Old Testament, uh, God had called out his house, his people, his children, Abraham, father Abraham. And so he revealed himself to Abraham when Abraham himself was an idolater and was not unfamiliar with worship, temples, buildings, methodologies, schemes and so on all of which at his age had come to nauseate him and the god of glory appeared to him Uh, that's what it says in acts 7 it says that the god of glory appeared to our father abraham when he was in ur of the chaldees and called him And thus from Abraham came the people of God. Abraham obeyed and so began the wonderful process of learning what God is like, uh, what he wants, Mm. the delight, the wonder of God. And of course, in due time, The children of Israel, 70 souls, uh, the grandson of Abraham and Jacob, 
and his great-grandson, Joseph, and the others, they went down into Egypt in a time of famine. You, you, you know the story at the end of Genesis. And so there's the people of God dwelling in a strange land, a strange land, a place of pharaohs, a place of other gods, a place, you know, of other forms of worship, some of it which was vicious, cruel, uh, vile. And there they were in the midst of it all the people of God in the midst of a strange land. And as you reflect upon these things, you can recall how after 400 years, according to the computation from what God had said to Abraham, after 400 years, I'll I'll bring you out. Um, God said, I will bring you out. You shall be my people and And this is, of course, what God did through Moses. And no one, the people of God were not drawn out of the places of bondage, confusion, and muddled and syncretism in their worship. They were not drawn out except, first of all, God had to draw out a man. That's actually what the name Moses means, a man who is drawn out. And God, you know, and this is the way, you know, Moses was drawn out. You remember the burning bush. You remember how the the miracle of God, the strength of God, and he delivered the people out of Egypt, along with a mixed multitude who went along with them, who very, very much would have been a syncretistic crowd. That means they worshipped other gods as well, as well as Jehovah. Um, And they came to the foot of the mountain and the Lord had already said to Moses, you've got to bring them here. You won't be able to bring them any further. Uh, That's it. I'll deliver them. I'll bring them through the, 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 the blood and the water. They will experience the salvation of the Lord through the water. Um, I I, I mean, I can't stop on these things, but um, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, God had said to to Moses Mm. and the people when they were hemmed in on every side. And it was the baptism in in the waters where they never got wet when they went there through the red say that brought about the salvation and the destruction of their enemies all of this has great meaning if i was to speak um, on the true greatness of what god does in the new covenant but they came out and moses led them to where he'd met god at the bush And then the Lord said to him, now you come up here and let the elders come up here. And so up Moses went and God gave him, of course, his law. And God gave him the pattern of the tabernacle. God gave him 
the many, many, many laws as well, which Moses wrote in a scroll. And so everything about Israel, about its worship, about its life, about its social relations, about its dealings with issues when things went wrong, everything was regulated by God. It, it was not left to Moses' opinion. It was not a, a left to the elders' opinion. It was given by God. And as we well know, this brought about this raising of this tabernacle and even the actual uh, tapestry, the actual functioning of the way the parts were made and fitted together. It was quite a simple building, curtains, pillars, um, some articles of furniture, um, altar. You, you know about these things, but it's good to understand them in this context. Their size, the materials used, the way they were put together, where they were placed, the garments of the priests. The only things that the people themselves contributed were, in a way, themselves in this sense that they brought jewels, they brought some gold, they brought some earrings, they brought some cloths, they brought this, but uh, they brought some wood, but it was not left the way that they had brought it. Everything had to be transformed into the pattern, the image of God. Uh, what God had decreed. And in Exodus 40, when all the work is complete, um, you know, God speaks to Moses and the Lord said to Moses on the first day, Verse one, two, of the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. This is how you're to meet. This is where you'll meet me. This is where I'll meet you, especially. Um, erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring in the table and set its arrangements in order. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door 
of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, the place and place the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put the water in it and you shall set up the court round about and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture and it shall become holy. And so we could read on. Uh, you bring Aaron, verse 12, and his sons to the door of the tent of meeting and you shall wash them with water. They can't come in dirty. They can't come in dirty. Uh, wash them with water. You'll take their old garments off and you'll put the holy garments on them. You'll anoint him, consecrate him. You'll bring his sons in, verse 14, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall admit, uh, admit them to a perpetual priesthood. Verse 16. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him. <clears throat> yes, he did it. First day of the month, of, in the second year. So they'd been brought out of Egypt in the first year and they did this in the first day of the month of the second year and everything was set up as the Lord commanded Moses. End of verse 19. And so it goes on <clears throat> as the Lord commanded Moses. End of verse 21. And at the end of verse 23, Three, as the Lord commanded Moses. And at the end of verse 25, as the Lord commanded Moses. It's great, isn't it? End of verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. And you go on down to the end of verse 32, as the Lord commanded Moses. They they washed as the Lord. And in the end of verse 33, so Moses finished the work. Then the loud, the Lord, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Great. Great. When they did everything as shown on the heavenly mount, as things were ordered according to what the Lord had shown unto Moses. And of course, you, you will appreciate the message, the lesson that I'm trying to bring here. Um, right at the beginning, because you will discover that this is one of the reasons, of course, why so few of us have experienced the glory 
of God filling the house. One of the things is because our inner man, our lives are not ordered as the Lord commanded Moses. Of course, it's you know that our Moses is not Moses. Uh, our Moses is Jesus. Uh, who's the head of the house? The son over his own house. And you'll appreciate this is one of the reasons why many of the Christian meetings that certainly I have attended, uh, many have been just an occasion of entertainment and boredom. Um, and so little of the glory and the flame and the fire and the blessedness of God, because there's been a drift, and there's been a big, big drift. And we are the people of God, and he has not put it into our hands to do as we please, to copy the world, to be like the nations round about who do their worship in Greenwich Village, as it was years ago, or do their worship in uh, Glastonbury Festival, as it's true over here, or do their worship as they do in uh, when there's no COVID, as they can do it in the temple in Melbourne, Australia, as they worship. And you say, well, Melbourne, Australia, the uh, great temple, they actually call it the temple of worship in Melbourne. It's called the MCG, where the worship goes on, the Melbourne cricket ground for those uninitiated as they worship where the crowds are beside themselves as their gods play the game of cricket, not too dissimilar to baseball with a multitude of subtleties like baseball has, by the way, just for those who are American, uh, just to say that. But it is amazing, brothers and sisters, how we have allowed ourselves the dubious luxury of drifting away, of having little of the pattern showed us on the mount. So with these things in your minds, uh, you appreciate, I mean, some of you, of course, know uh, quite a lot about church history. I hope that you do. And you know that in those early days of the church when the Lord Jesus was allowed to order his house through his apostles whom he had chosen and to whom he had shown the pattern. You know that in the book of Acts there is just 
little insights, not massively, but in chapter two, for instance, of the book of Acts, there is this little insight um, uh, in verse 42 of how the Lord ordered his house through his apostles there in Jerusalem. And it's a simple verse. There were 3,000 souls that had been added to them. You know, it says, verse 41, those who received his word, that's Peter's word who preached, but really it was God's word. They they were baptized and uh, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. If I may point this out to you just in passing, you'll find no record that anybody joined the church. Um, nobody joined the church. What you discover is the weight of scripture is that God added them to the church. He added them to the body. He added them to the assembly. And they were added to the church. 3,000 souls. And verse 442 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and breaking of bread and the prayers and fear came upon every soul they devoted themselves i think some versions say they continued steadfastly actually this um verse uh, I was talking to someone, I think I mentioned this last night, um, I was talking to a pastor through the week, um, last week, in the United States, and he was saying to me, um, uh, I was preaching last Sunday in our church, and he said my text was, Acts 2.42, I'm trying to help the people understand what real church is. And he said, "I'm. it's a hard job. Uh, our young people, just the young couples with the young children, they just want to do it their way. Uh, they don't want to become involved with any real fellowship that costs them. Mm. Uh, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to become engaged in bringing about some kind of program to help their children and their younger children. They would prefer to go off to the nearest larger town and the nearest larger church where there's a program already arranged. And he said, 
I started my message last Sunday, he said, by saying, I'm going to quote Bernard Howe. And uh, <laughs> I said, oh, really? Well, are you going to quote me? He said, yes. He said, a time 15 years ago, 20 years ago, where Bernard came and stayed, and I was very sad, and my wife was very sad, because the difficulties of the church, and how people were drifting and this and that, and how nobody wanted to work. And uh, we poured our hearts out to Bernard, and Bernard just sat there and listened, and said in reply, after all our complaints, three words. Bernard just said three words. Church is work. That's apparently what I said. I have no recollection of the conversation or anything. But of course, I've discovered that. But it's no good working except you work according to the pattern and the ways of God. That's the thing. And here you've got four things that are fundamental. And in our little meeting today in that school gym that I mentioned earlier, the brother who led the meeting, whose name is Steve, he started with a verse from 1 Corinthians 14, which surprised me. In fact, he didn't know where it was. It was just in his heart. And he, what he said, we got into the meeting. He said, where's that verse that talks about when you come together? Uh, you know, and I said, well, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. So he read this out and you know, and then this, this led to a comment by a lady, uh, one of the regular ladies in the church, and she said, that's what's different about our group. And it's even better lately. And Steve said this to me privately. It's gotten even better the last year or so because there are certain things that we have given too much room to that no longer can happen. And so there's participation, there's sharing. And so all of this I'm trying to bring out to you. So when you come to the Corinthian letter, you are not reading the opinions of a man. You like Moses, was not allowed to do anything except according to the pattern that was shown him on the mount. Just the same thing, dear Paul the Apostle, you know where he had received the understanding of the family of God, the ways of God, the gatherings of God's people. You, you realize where it had come from. That it hadn't come from his Jewish background and it had not come from common practice 
in other gods and other worship systems around about. He had received an understanding of the ways of the Lord, direct from the Lord. And that's important that we grasp. And so it's not negotiable that if we will come under the word of God, if we will come under what the Lord has granted us in the scripture and in church history, you probably know about what we now know as Roman Catholicism, of course, was simply the church headquartered in Rome through the dark ages, uh, so-called dark ages. And you will know that there were certain reformatory movements in the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Some of them became monastic orders as they they resisted the formalism. They resisted the the darkness that was in the churches. And, uh, you know, then you know a little bit about Luther. We all know about him. And we know about Henry VIII and Anglicanism. And you know how many of the people, you know, they they came out. No, we want more liberty. But then there were these people in the 17th century called the Puritans who didn't think that the reformation into the simplicities of God and God's ways had gone far enough. I don't know whether you realize that about the Puritans. They were mainly ministers who just thought that the reformation had not gone far enough. And then at the same time, Of course, there arose other groups in the United Kingdom and some in the United States. Some of you have heard of the Shakers and people like that who wanted to be the people of God in yet more simple communal ways. Some of them in this country were called the Ranters. And then there was the Free Church people And then there was the people we call the Quakers. They're called that. They weren't called that at the beginning. And they didn't call themselves Quakers. They just called themselves friends. And they they wanted to go as far as being the family of God that met together in great simplicity to wait upon him and hear his voice. And they had a marvelous consciousness in those early days that Jesus was in their midst as their minister and that the way that he chose to minister was through many members, male and female. And so their dependency was on the living Christ in the midst of them and the giftings and enablings that he gave to them, weak, dependent people. Their dependency was not on university degrees like the Puritans had a dependence upon them and ministers and all that. 
kind of thing. And there have been other times, and I'm not here to give a, a potted church history of the last four or five hundred years. Not at all. But this ache to get back to, you know, how do you order your church, Lord Jesus? How do you order our worship? How how do you expect us to gather? What are your ways? And of course, Paul declares in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, that's where I am now, he declares in the first verse things we've seen before, but he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle. I've been sent from him. You know that's what apostle means. One who is sent. I know where I've come from. I've come from Jesus Christ. And he declares himself, I'm now in the fourth chapter. He declares in the fourth chapter that he is their father. Their father. He says, uh, I... I do not write, verse 14 of chapter 4, the, these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he writes to them, as their father. <clears throat> he writes to them as their apostle, the one through whom Christ had moved, Christ had called, Christ had gathered them, gathered them into a holy family in the midst of an unholy nation out of which they had come, out of which they were having difficulty extricating themselves from some of its worship habits, patterns, corruptions and wickednesses. Am I making sense? Nod if you can see that I'm making sense. They had difficulty extricating themselves from the common idolatries and worships, the demonic activities, the false prophetic ministries, the false adulation of education and philosophy that was so predominant in Corinth. You understand. And they brought with them some of the garbage, the methodologies, the techniques, and so on. And yet Paul had managed that they had a good beginning. And if I turn you into the second letter, 
of Corinthians chapter 11, you notice there in the 11th chapter how uh, just hauling out one verse, one phrase, that as he describes his ministry amongst them, uh, he says, verse 2, second half of the verse, in chapter 11, verse 2, second half, I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. But I'm afraid that as the serpent beguiled Eve and so on, that you should be beguiled from that simplicity that's in Christ. He knew that he had brought them to their teacher, Christ. He had joined them to their head, their husband, Christ. He had brought them to their living head, Jesus, the living one. Jesus, their teacher. Jesus, the one in the midst of them. Jesus, the one to whom they were to gather individually, personally. Hallelujah. Jesus. And if Jesus be not your teacher, you know, primarily your teacher and me just a little uh, helper. If Christ be not speaking through me, if Christ, because Christ builds his church, men don't, women don't. Christ is the builder of his church. And you know, when I think of this, you realize that Paul is having to write to them because from those good, clean beginnings, they had strayed in their moral behavior, in their spiritual attitudes, in their manner of meeting, they had gone astray. So that you well know that uh, in one of the chapters in, in 1 Corinthians, he says to them something like this. <clears throat> this is chapter 11. Verse 17, I've commented on this verse before, but I'm wanting to bring all these things together. In the following instructions, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. The ingraining of bad habits that's what's happening amongst you. The fostering of divisions among you. All sorts of things that when you come together, you're doing your soul's damage. That is a staggering thing. Uh, I remember a period in a church where there was division 
and uh, difficulty and I had a measure of responsibility in that church and it led to a church meeting where we gathered together and hearts opened to one another and we arrived at the position that we would no longer break bread or take the communion together until every heart was humbled and the schism between certain people was remedied. And it only lasted six or eight weeks and such was the seriousness of it because we realized that to carry on meeting and going through the motions was doing more harm than good. We realized that. And you can see, therefore, and when Paul writes to them about their meetings in particular, He's written to them about their relationships. He's written to them about their attitudes to leaders, you know, Peter, Paul, all that. He's written to them about that. And uh, he's going to write to them about when they do gather. But uh, at the end of chapter 4, but coming back there, he says this, verse 19. I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in a spirit of gentleness. And I've read that verse because I've been having a good soak again in the whole letter and particularly in uh, 12, 13, 14, having a good soak again over these weeks. And I realize how tenderly he writes. I realize how he doesn't come to them with a rod and command them, you must do this. Now everyone stop speaking in tongues. We're fed up with it. He speaks to them in love and in a spirit of gentleness. How does he do that? Well, of course, it comes out of his loving heart for them. He's their father. He's moving in a much more expansive kingdom than they are. They've allowed themselves to be overwhelmed by all the nonsense of phenomena and tongue-speaking, tongue-speaking, tongue-speaking. Their meetings must have been so boring to listen to interminable talking in tongues. But they thought it was great. Because after all, remember their backgrounds, some of them. You know that, you know, whoever was the most dynamic and could shout the loudest was the most powerful. I've been in places just like this. 
I've been in places just like this. Where everything is judged by the quality of the music, the band, the volume. We're a million miles away from real church. We're a million miles away. It's one of the reasons for the Lord's disciplines to come. You know, where the experts, well, I, I, I don't want to go on about it particularly. But I haven't got to be in my bonnet about these things. I just realize that we're not ordering church according to what the Lord has shown us in his book. And it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to be a real Quaker, for instance, in those days. It took them courage because they were mocked and mocked and mocked and mocked because they came together and sat in quietness, waiting on their head, Christ, to begin to speak and prompt certain ones to pray, to prophesy, to preach, to share this, to do many, many things. And Paul writes with such tenderness to the Corinthian church, I believe, anyway. And, you know, one of the things about, I'm now in the 12th chapter, all right, so if you turn there, you notice that, you know, this kind of ejaculation that rises in the end of the third verse where no one can say, Jesus, Lord, except by the Holy Ghost. Last night on that uh, Zoom meeting I did at midnight, um, we went through certain things and then it turned into a time of questions and answers. And uh, I, I was asked some comments about prophecy um, because in chapter 12 and so on the word prophecy is mentioned a lot not that I've been talking from there and you know one of the questions from a very troubled lady um, from Malaysia of course was she's troubled about what constitutes real prophecy? Because she's used to seeing so-called prophets coming, giving personal words to this one and that one. The Lord says to you that this is going to happen to you. You're going to have the most successful business in your city and it's all going to happen to you in the space of two years and if it'll happen to and And I, I mean, I've heard it all. So many of these things. And she's troubled. And she asked the question, how do we know? And one of the things I said in answer 
the net result of hearing the true word of God is that there's something in your heart that rises up and says, Oh, Jesus, Lord, 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 you're wonderful. Not, oh, that's good, I'm going to be a successful business person. Oh, no, that's good, I'm going to be a fantastic preacher. I think of a young man, for instance, who we knew quite well. And uh, that dear young man, his mother had prophesied over him, you are going to be Australia's Billy Graham. How stupid. And that young man who's now well in his late 50s became, became an alcoholic from which he's never really recovered. Far away from the Lord as he strived to fulfill the word. Such personal prophecy is an exceptional rarity in God's church. Don't look for it. The Lord Jesus is the shepherd of your soul. He will speak within you as he will. It's very important. But Paul, this great mark, really, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What's the spirit of what you're hearing? What's the spirit of what you're hearing tonight? You're, you're hearing words, words that I believe are based in the scripture, that corroborate scripture. You're hearing words, but what is the spirit of those words? What is the spirit of them? What, what are you left with? Um, so that if you were to listen to a great politician, you think perhaps of someone, rather a graphic example, it's true if you've ever picked up any snippets of Hitler's speaking in some of those amazing speeches that he gave in Nuremberg and so on. What are you left with? What was a depressed German nation left with? What was it gripped the spirits of those people? What spirit came out of Hitler's mouth that so gathered their spirits into a kind of unity so that you had to be a very courageous Bonhoeffer or Niemöller or a very courageous minister to stand against them. You understand what spirit was coming out? A spirit that lauded the, the German fatherland, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. You understand what spirit. And in the church, brothers and sisters, 
That's what we want to hear, the testimony of Jesus. So that a lady gave a testimony in our meeting this morning about her experience flying out of Palma, Mallorca years ago and her fear as things went wrong with the plane and they had to dump fuel. Hayden and I are very aware of these kinds of things and the fear that was palpable and how the Lord ministered to her in the plane. And at the end of her testimony, we were left with the testimony of a faithful saviour, Jesus. We weren't left with a consciousness, wow, what a lady is her. How strong was her faith? You see, hallelujah, the testimony of Jesus. This is from Revelation 19.10. That's where I'm quoting from. It's a verse you need to underline when it, it's the spirit, the testimony of Jesus. I am that I am. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore. Hear him. Hear him. Hear him when you're in the boat on the waters. Hear him bring you his testimony. You know, when you're in the waters, when you seem to be sinking, fear not. I am, you see, this is the spirit of the prophetic word. This is the spirit of the true preaching. The true preaching, the true prophetic ministry, the true teaching ministry will lead you, leave you devastated at times will leave you in a condition of heart where you say, oh, I'm nowhere. But it won't leave you there. Because uh, when Jesus is talking to you, it will come through. But there is resurrection in me now. I am that I am. Look not upon yourself, but be thou transformed. You know, there's this wonderful, holy positivity. That's what's so wonderful. And it, it, it is tremendous, isn't it? And, you know, so remember this as you move into some of these lists of things through which Jesus wants to express himself in his body. What people call the gifts and ministries of the spirit. So remember this, uh, how Jesus wants to express his shepherd heart, his loving heart, his delivering ministry, how he wants to express it. How are you going to express it, Lord Jesus? Well, I've got a body and I've given to that body a body of gifts, a body of ministries, you know, and those who become skilled 
and mature in these things don't even think about it. So they don't think about a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or I prophesied yesterday or I did this or I did that or I did the other. You understand? It just becomes part of life. And, you know, Jesus, um, it's so wonderful. Paul says that, uh, so I'm in the fourth verse of chapter 12. There are varieties of gifts. (laughs) But the same spirit. And there are varieties of service. But the same, Lord. And there are varieties of working energies, but it is the same God. <laughs> uh, can you can you see the repetition in Paul's mind? Varieties. Oh, my dear Corinthians, who are stuck on one gift who've got meetings filled with, uh, you know, tongue-speaking. There are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of servings. You know, there are varieties of energies. (laughs) But it's the same spirit. Let me lead you into the great house of God. You know, let me... Let me show you things according to the pattern that was showed me on the mountain. Of course, Paul didn't say that, but it had been showed him. You know, he'd seen. Oh, the largeness of Christ. Do you know, if you and I had been walking among the uh, discipleship group, walking through Judea and Samaria with Jesus. You know, he seemed to be so full of variety, but the same. You understand, same, but so different, variety. Uh, Isn't that great? Did he smile? Did he, was he glad? Did he rejoice in spirit? Did he, did he, you know, think of the, think of the variety of the way, dare I say this horrible phrase, he handled people. You know, some he rebuked with firmness, some he drew out, some he stretched out his hands, some he put out of the house. Take your wailing, you wailing, sentimental women. Get out of here. Peter, you silly man, get behind me. You're an adversary. You know, Jesus is so variety. And, uh, <laughs> you know, isn't God himself various yet one? Is God all father? 
Yes, but no. Is God all sun? Yes, but no. Is he spirit? Yes, but he's father and son. You see, God himself is so beyond measure that to think of him as father is not enough. And to think of him as son is not enough. And to think of him as spirit is not enough. You see, let the church itself begin to reflect in variety. Variety of gifts. Let it begin to reflect a little more of the image of God, of the multifarious Nature of God, his smile, his rebuke, his tears, his uplifting, his downputting, his firmness, the fear, and yet the joy and the gladness. You see, these are the things that are in Paul's mind. I just want to show you. The variety of these gifts, the varieties of, of the way they express themselves. It's the same Lord. You, you probably all noticed, I'm sure you have the Trinity there. You have the Trinity there in verse three. You have the Trinity there in verse four. Two places where already he's speaking about the unity of God and the diversity of the persons. Do you notice in verse 3 where you have the Spirit of God? God, that's the Father. Jesus, the Lord. You have the three persons there, and you have the three persons there in verse 4, don't you? Same Spirit. Same Lord, that's Jesus. Same God, that's the Father. That you, you, you know, and to each of us. Now, do I need to tell you, um, I'm sure I haven't, that these things, are, there are diversities of gifts. Charismata, you, you, you've heard of it, charismatic. Please do not think that this is an exhaustive list, because it's not. Paul is not giving a doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit. He's not putting it neatly in boxes. It's almost as though in the flow of the Spirit, in the context of those to whom he's writing, oh, understand, Understand, dear Corinthians, who so have prided yourself on wisdom and knowledge, you know, cleverness and all the rest of it. Understand where true wisdom and true knowledge comes from. That, you see, they were stuck in a groove, the Corinthians, their background. 
just like the churches of today. And I'm sorry to have to say it again, but, you know, churches have gotten stuck. If only people would read A.W. Tozer again. A man preaching back in the 40s and 50s, giving serious warnings to the American churches about their love affair with music. He said it would destroy the churches, and so it nearly has. That it would detract from true worship. That it would elevate young people into positions where they were nothing but mere novices. And things would degenerate and the church would be domesticated from its the wildness, the true wildness that it should have. Remember the lion of the tribe of Judah. You remember Mr. C.S. Lewis, you know. He's a lion, you know. And uh, what was the retort? Can you remember the retort that came? But he's a lion. But he's a lion. I won't say it. You find it out, you know, <laughs> what it is. But um, the domesticated church. You know, domesticated by the passing fads of music fancies. And these kinds of things, missing, oh, brothers and sisters, missing the variety. We had some variety in our little church today. Probably half the people gathered participated by prayer, by reading a scripture, by speaking a short word by praying for someone else, by, yes, you see, there was a richness there and everybody felt it. Amen. Amen. You know, I look at these things. We've got a distance to travel. But those who are not humble and teachable shall not travel any further. They shall just go round and round and round and round and round and round like a silly sheep until they bury themselves. You know that that is a way that a sheep will kill itself? Did you know that? Round and round, round and round, wearing away a ditch into which it cannot, out of which it cannot get up. So I have read and been told, for I'm no shepherd, though there's at least one person on this who is a shepherd on this Zoom tonight who keeps sheep. Ah, but oh, the wonderful. Let's read the list, shall we? Uh, to 1 verse 8, or let's read verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
I think that that would be worth dwelling on a long while. I mean, (laughs) to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. You know, how's the Spirit manifesting through you in in your neighborhood, in your church, manifesting through you. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone. Everyone, that's everyone who's in the body. Everybody who has is born of God's Spirit. Everybody who is joined to Christ. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone, to each one. Amen. You have a place. How I thank God for my background in this regard, that as a young boy, I observed that being worked out and at 15, 16, 17 years old in a meeting, I knew that somehow God, if he wanted to, He wanted to bring something through me, some service in the flock, some help, not necessarily in a meeting. But uh, is there any part in your physical body that is just utterly useless, doesn't have a place and a part? Manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for the common good, common good. Ah, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. I hope you'll see the gentle corrective in this for these seekers after wisdom in Corinth, these seekers after knowledge. These people who prided themselves on philosophical backgrounds and this, that and the other. I hope you'll see the gentle corrective. To one is given through the spirit. Through the spirit. That's where, that's where wisdom comes from. From the spirit. Not from your school. Some of you know I went through Bible seminary and all that stuff. What I share with you, I didn't get there. And not that I'm saying that if God doesn't lead you to one, you shouldn't go. Of course not. Of course not. But it doesn't come from book learning. If all you have is that you're a book-learned person, then you'll just turn people into book-learned people. That's the thing. Comes through the Spirit, which necessitates, therefore, that you drink of the Spirit, which is what he comes to, doesn't he? Down there in verse 13. In one spirit, you're all baptized into one body and made to drink into one spirit. You see, if the wisdom's going to come through the spirit, 
And sometimes the spirit can use the most. Well, Paul is going to talk about it. Sometimes pay special attention to those that are sometimes regarded as least in the body. For it may be that God will surprise you and bring some word of wisdom by his spirit. Listen, listen, listen. A word of knowledge. I'm not interpreting and going into detail at this point what these things are because sometimes there's that which defies analysis. Wisdom is bigger than any analysis you can lay upon it. And knowledge, just think in terms of the words of wisdom that uh, we call proverbs. Think of those in the Old Testament. Think of the knowledge that comes through again and again. It's always larger those of us who come from a Pentecostal charismatic kind of background sometimes have depressed or compressed these things by our determinations to try and analyze them. Uh, they're larger. To another is given faith. By the same spirit. Remember, we're not reading an exhaustive list, but we're, we're reading a list written to a particular group of people who prided themselves that they were a people of great faith. And he's saying to them, comes by the spirit, the gift of faith. By the same spirit given to another faith. You know, we, we were outgrowing our building. Uh, the house that Hazel and I lived in with all its many bedrooms and where we used to meet. Um, we had a large room. Uh, Maybe a hundred people could squeeze in. We had kitchens and bedrooms. and There came the time where, well, I wanted to, div to divide the church up. I wanted to suggest that we met the other side of the city. So we went into two congregations, but they didn't want to do it. And so the Lord does unusual things sometimes. But he, he gave to me a vision of a building with two beautiful pillars outside the front of it. And, you know, I, I sense that he wanted to lead us to a building with pillars out the front. And he also gave to me the figure of 3,000. I went round looking for buildings with pillars out the front in the city, which is the practical thing to do. And uh, I found one or two, and one or two that was for sale. And anyway, they fell through. And I found one that was for sale. And uh, so we made inquiries. And I brought it to the church. 
And I said, well, this is what the Lord showed me, the figure of 3,000. And this was many years ago. And um, it's a building with pillars. And do you want to go and look at it? So they all went down to look at this building, decrepit and broken down and messed up. And I don't know what. And uh, it, it led to this. I won't go into the whole story where Price, everyone except one person, said, I think we should do it, we should go for it, but how much shall we offer? And I said, 3,000. That's what the Lord gave me, this figure. And they said, it's impossible. They're asking 35 or whatever it was. And... Um, <laughs> I just knew that God was going to give this to us, but I can't, couldn't force my faith, faith on anybody, can you? And there's this one person who said, no, no, no. I said, well, we'll just wait. We'll just wait. Whatever we do, we want to do in unanimity. And we met again a few weeks later, and this brother said, well, if God's going to give it to us for 3,000, go, go ahead. So... We made the offer, but there was faith that rose. God gave us a gift of faith for something that was impossible. And I will tell you an interesting thing, that sometime after we got into the building and began to work on it, a man came to us and said to me, oh, so you're the people who bought it. And I said, yes. And he said, I had an offer in for this building to open it as a dance school. And uh, he said, how much did you get it for? So I said, 3,000 pounds. And he said, I don't believe it. He said, I had a standing offer in for 17,000 pounds. They bypassed his offer and they gave it to us. But you see a little thing where God just quickens particular faith and you move quietly through and God does something. That's supernatural. By the Spirit, he does such things. There was at least one person here tonight on this who was much involved in that building and the work that we did on it. And God gave us faith, didn't he, Bill? He gave us faith, and we were able to do things impossible. How's it come? By the Spirit. It's not us cooking things up. To another, there's healings, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. You know, to be available to the Lord, to live, you know, in this drinking of the one spirit. You know, there's so many ways. Healings. Someone asked me to speak at a meeting. This just past few days. You know, and as he, as he proffered to me the invitation, and he said to me, I want you to come when it's free to do so. 
and I want you to speak in our church. And as he opened his mouth and made the invitation to me, immediately I knew that I was supposed to speak on healing and pray in that church straight away that that's what he wanted. I am the Lord that heals you. So many ways we need healing. It's not just physical. How the Lord Jesus wants to stretch out his hands in concrete ways and touch people and heal them, heal their hearts with a word or whatever it might be, heal their bodies, perhaps heal without your hardly realizing in, you know, how wonderful these things, how the Lord wants to give gifts. You see, there are things into which we must enter. Down there in Pune, India, all those years ago, just walking in and out of meetings. Only time has ever happened to me anyway. So many poor people and I became aware they were reaching out their hands and touching me on the way through in and out of the meetings. I couldn't speak the language. They speak Marathi there. And I said to Kumud, who was my interpreter lady, later in the week, I said, why are these people touching me? And she said, because I didn't want to tell you seeing as you ask because some people are being healed they're being healed they're being physically healed amen no prayer being offered no laying on of hands and i know that's part of god's generosity of heart i've never had that any other place because that's not something that the Lord's given to me. But sometimes he wants to do things through you. Love. Live in the spirit. Embrace. Pray. Don't say that, you know, don't say you're an, you, you don't have a part. You're in the body or of the same spirit. There is this vastness. You know, bless people around you. There's these things that he talks about here. There's working of miracles, I guess, to get a building for 3,000 when there's a standing offer of 17 and a half in is a bit of a miracle. Bit of a miracle. But these things are there and there's... This distinguishing between spirits, perhaps we ought to take some time on some of these things. I've got to stop, Hazel says. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, she's only at 29. Stop. Um, all right. <laughs> you know, it's the neck that twists the head. <laughs> You've heard that one, have you? <laughs> you know, but this, you know, if I can leave you just with the, the, of the, the variety and notice the things that are not there. The things that are there today, 
big time mm. and are not there in this particular or any list in the New Testament. And none of these lists are meant to be exhaustive. Paul is throwing these things out because he loves the people and he's speaking gently to them. And he says this, having placed the different kinds of tongues at the end of the list, which is a kindly way of saying, not that it's the least of the gifts, don't think that. But he's just wanting to put it in its place in the context of so many more. Oh, Corinthians, Corinthians. I mean, does this in any way stir you to say, to pray the plum prayer? Have you, anyone here ever, ever prayed the plum prayer? P-L-U-M. The plum prayer. Please, Lord, use me. The plum prayer. Someone smiled. Amen. You know, to pray that prayer. Oh, Lord, will you express yourself through me? You realize, don't you, that one of the things he mentions here is prophecy. Mm. You, you know what might happen if the Lord quite regularly uses you in spontaneous utterance. And, you know, you understand that someone might even call you, I'm in verse 28 now, that you may become set in the church as someone who's a prophet. Because quite regularly God is using you with spontaneous utterance. Because of your fellowship with the Lord, you see, you mustn't think any of these things are offices and positions in the church. They're descriptive terms. They're descriptive. That's like a teacher, you see, the Lord might use you, you know, to give a teaching from time to time. And, and the more that you do, the more you're quickened to teach the scripture, teach the truth. And the more you do so, you might become known in that church. Well, he's, he's a bit of a teacher. Same spirit. And you might want to ask me, well, what's the difference between prophecy and teaching? And that's a legitimate question, which, because my wife told me to stop, I will. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll take time. Amen. Amen. I hope that's enough to... Will, will you read these chapters? Will you... Will you think about the riches of our God? Will you think about your own part in the body? Will you, will you begin to say, oh, Lord, for if the church do not embrace more perfectly the Lord's orderings, he will bring about circumstances which will remove some of the things that displease him.
he will enter into his temple and he will cleanse it. He will enter it and he will overturn the tables we've set up and he will chase out with his whip the, the, the merchandising and the manipulation and the practices because it, it still is the father's house. It's the Father's house. And so the Lord will enter his temple. But he gives us first opportunity to, to say, Oh Lord, according to your pattern, help me to bring it in. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. To to bless you for the common good. There are precious things to enter into. Amen. Thank you, Mark. I'm, that's me for tonight. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bernard. Can I ask, does it make sense? Do you know, the first responses in our hearts, when I began to see these things as a young man, still in my teens, there was a response that rose in my heart. Amen. 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 That's, that's what rose. That's where it all begins. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes Lord. Let me see this. Mm. for your glory yeah mm. yeah no it's wonderful and uh, I think we want to respond and pray uh, and two things really strike me to embrace more perfectly the Lord's orderings and uh, yes, that's, uh, so uh, you said it we need courage to do that and um that the Lord would fill our hearts with courage, that we would pursue his ways more perfectly in his heart. And um, and the second thing was, well, I suppose you, you summarised it with the plum prayer, but but really that we, we open our, our lives to be available for the Lord to use us mm. uh, in a variety of ways, in ways perhaps we've not known before. Um, but sometimes we might feel very inadequate, um, but really our level of, Adequacy isn't the point, it's our availability to him and our heart that says, I'm, I'm here, please use me, Lord, in whatever way, wherever, wherever I'm at, please use me. So uh, we, Hazel's keeping check on time, so uh, <laughs> that's, uh, why, don't, why don't a couple of people just lead us in a prayer of response and we'll all <laughs> say an amen, so um if you'd be willing to do that just unmute yourself where you are and, and just lead us in prayer and uh, bless the lord thank you